What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Attention nerds! If you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, Maybe you can hire The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. And welcome to a Saturday edition of The Riley and Kimmy Show. And right next to me is my version of a cartoon for Saturday. Kimmy, I got one name. Kimmy. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi there. I am your host, Patrick Riley. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy. Three very sane spectators. Uh, we question sane next to me on, on the left. Behind me, definitely no question. Two fur kids, they're, they're with it. They're sane. They are. That's true. And right next to me is my psychic. I mean, my psycho. I mean, yeah, she's my psychic. She's the sane one. That is Kimmy. Hello, Kimmy. Hello. Welcome to a Saturday edition of the Riley and Kimmy Show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to have you here. And, Glad to be here. And by the way, I shouldn't be uh, I shouldn't be harassing you that way, teasing you, because truly you're the person who keeps me out of trouble. Mm. You really are. Yes. I, you know, I, I'm being honest. You're 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 definitely the person who watches out for me. I have to say that. It is a Saturday, March 25th. Kimmy, I have a question for you. Would you like to play nerd and pop culture geek trivia? Certainly. We'll be asking Kimmy some questions from the pop culture world. Feel free to shout out some answers to her if she's struggling on some of them. I have a feeling she won't be. She is very, very smart. Play along with Kimmy. Feel free to shout out at your laptop, desktop, tablet, or smartphone. You can do that because we might get the answers. That's right. We believe in time travel answers. And you can shout at any kind of computing device because you can listen to the Riley and Kimmy show anywhere on planet Earth. We are mobile. We are global. Be sure to tell your friends about the Nerd Daily Variety Talk Show. Brand new stuff offering pop culture escapism. That's the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow by liking the Facebook page. And you can find links to all our social media right on our website, which is RileyAndKimmy.com. Kimmy, are you ready to go on this Saturday? Yes, I am. All right. It was on this date in history, 1954. RCA manufactured its first color TV set. They began mass production in 1954. Now, did your family ever tell you when they got the very first color TV set? I don't know. I don't think so. They didn't tell me. I don't know. All right. My father refused to introduce you know, any form of color television, it's, I mean, period, even up, uh, black and white's good enough, that's color, black and white, he, he refused to, he refused to do that, I had to introduce that to my family when I bought one for them when I was a teenager. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think he was stunned to see color. Mm. Yes, it was on this date, Kimmy, in 1960, this recording artist did this song, he recorded it, and it would become a, a hit shortly after. Tell me who the recording artist is. Only the lonely. You 
have a look of uh, puzzlement, Kimmy, to the face. Why is that? You should know who this iconic rock icon was. Can you tell me who that is? Ricky Nelson? Oh, no, Kimmy. I'll give you another clue. You need to know this. He's known for wearing his shades, and he's known for a pretty woman. Oh, pretty woman. Oh, 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 oh. Roy Orbison. Yes. What is wrong with you? I don't know. I thought you would know that that golden voice there. I don't know. That was only the lonely 1960 Roy Orbison. The Big O, as some called him. That was his nickname to some. It was 1961. Elvis performed his last live show for the next eight years. He did this in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The show raised $62,000 for the USS Arizona Memorial Fund. It was on this date, 1963. This group released an album, and the album, well, we have the title track from it. See if you can tell me who the recording artists are. Well, bushy, bushy, bon Serving USA. Can you tell me who it is, Kimmy? Of course, it's the Beach Boys. That's right, and they released the album, Surfing USA. It was on this date in 19-something, Kimmy. The Who made their U.S. concert debut in New York. Can you give me the year? Within two, that The Who made their first U.S. concert debut. 69? Actually made their first concert play in the United States, not first debut. Yes, it was 1967, so you got that because it was 1969, and that's within two years. It was on this date, Kimmy. See if you can tell me an answer to this thing. It was 1968 that the final episode of this TV show... It was on this day, 1968, the final episode of The Monkees aired on TV. Now, can you tell me within five how many total episodes there were of The Monkees? How many within five? 20. There were 58 episodes of The Monkees. I take it you weren't a big Monkees TV fan, even though they re-released no. the Monkees basically no. back in what it was the 80s or so or 90s. I, can't I remember never, which. never watched it. Okay, it was on this date in 1970. The Concorde made its first supersonic flight. It was on this date in 1975. The Jimi Hendrix Live album, Band of Gypsies, was released. Do you have that in your vinyl collection? No. It was on this date in 1979. The first fully functional space shuttle orbiter, Columbia, is delivered to the John F. Kennedy Space Center to be prepared for its first launch. 1985, Prince won an Oscar for Best Original Score for the soundtrack for the movie what, Kimmy? Purple Rain. That's exactly right. I take it you probably have that on in your collection. Of course. It's on his date, 1990, Tommy Lee of what group was arrested for allegedly exposing his butt during a concert in Augusta, Georgia? Kimmy, uh, what group was Tommy Lee with? Um, I get those mixed up. Bon Jovi. Um, bon Jovi, no. It was Motley Crue. I, I get all yes, those hair bands. Was, I, I don't know the difference between the hair now bands. There's a, now, somebody's yelling at you. There's a big difference I between know. Motley Crue and, and I, Bon Jovi. I know. I you could have went for a shot, maybe I'm rat, sure there, I'm poison. I'm sure there's or a difference. Yes, there but is. They all run together to me. All right. 1995, <laughs> this boxer was released from jail after serving three years. Can you tell me the name of the boxer? Mike Tyson. That's right. It was on his day, 2002. The FCC dismissed complaints against Walt Disney Company's ABC Network for broadcasting Victoria's Secret Fashion Show in November 2001. Yeah, there were some people a little upset with that one. Now, I didn't see that. Did you see that 2001 Victoria's Mm-mm. Secret thing? 
wonder what happened. Now I, I want to see it. Celebrity and notable birthdays. Ed Begley Sr., yes, the dad to Ed Begley Jr., was born on this date in 1901. He died in 1970 at the age of 69. American actor of theater, radio, film, and television. Tons of work. Next person born on this date, Kimmy. TV Guide named him the all-time best sportscaster in its issue celebrating 40 years of television. In 1996, he was ranked number 47 on TV Guide's 50 Greatest TV Stars of All Time. Here's your audio clue. Tell me who the birthday person is. Hello again, everyone. It's good to have you with us for this event. It figures to be an exceptional one, one that doesn't need any buildup. The rest of Monday night is given over to those gargantuan goliaths of the gridiron for that bouncing behemoth ballet known better as professional football. Who is that sportscaster, Kimmy, born on this date in history? Howard Cosell. That is correct. Now, within five years, what year did he pass away? 2005. Passed away 1995 at the age of 77. Tell me what professional boxer he used to have verbal, uh, you know, um, verbal sparring with. Muhammad Ali. That's right. And they were actually friends. Moving over to somebody else having a birthday today, an astronaut, Kimmy, commander of Apollo 13. Can you tell me who he is? Tom Hanks played him on film. Jim Lovell. That's correct. How old is astronaut Jim Lovell within five years? You have actually been in his airspace a couple of times out at Kennedy Space Center. Uh-huh. Um, 62. Jim Lovell, today, is 89 years old. Holy cow. <laughs> just a little off. Uh, just, a, just a tad I'm off there. Give me... by that much. Well, you have to say this much. He does not look like an 80-year-old when you met him. He was in his 80s, so... Wow. No, he didn't. Totally not. No. Now, the next person, Kimmy, born on this date, passed away in a freak boating accident at the age of 30 in 1964. He's a rockabilly artist known for this song, which would eventually become a hit for another individual in the 70s. It would be a hit, but it was a hit in the 60s and was included in American Graffiti. Ooh, you come on like a dream. Peaches and cream. Lips like strawberry wine. You're 16. You're beautiful and you're mine. You're all ribbons and curls. Oh, what a girl. Eyes that twinkle and shine. You're 16. You're beautiful and you're mine. Yes, you're 16. Originally done by Johnny Burnett in 1960. Reached number eight on the on the charts. And then it was done back oh, a few years later in the 1970s by whom, Kimmy? Um, it was done by Ringo Starr. Yes, and you like that song, correct? You like the Ringo version. Mm-hmm. I still have problems. Okay. With, I have problems with that song. I just <laughs> I, I, I think it, it's kind of creepy if you actually uh, listen to the words. <sighs> Hoyt Axton, born on this date, 1938, died 1999 at the age of 61. American folk singer, songwriter, guitarist, and you would see him in film and also television. A lot of TV shows like McLeod and things like that. He would appear as a guest. 1939 marks the birth of D.C. Fontana, who is 78 today. American television scriptwriter, very important. Best known for her work on the original Star Trek franchise and several Western television series. By the way, the original Star Trek TV series books, the compilations of the scripts, are fantastic. You can read DC Fontana's work with that. It's just, it's really, really good. Next person having a birthday, a singer. Tell me how old this singer is once you identify who she is. Here's your audio clue. Hey, Roger. Won't you 
is that, Kimmy? Retha Franklin. That's right. How old is she today? 65. She is 75 today. Now the question for you, within within 10, how many songs has she recorded that have charted on the Billboard charts? How many has she recorded that have charted on the Billboard charts within 10? 48. 112 Jeez. have charted, including 77 Hot 100 entries, 17 Top 10 Pop Singles, 100 R&B entries, and 20 Number 1 R&B Singles. She is the most charted female artist in history for Billboard. Next person, actor having a birthday. You had a crush on him as a child, I think, Kimmy. Best known, playing on this TV show. See if you can identify the TV show. I think Kimmy learned how to drive watching that show. I, uh, trust me, if you ride with her, you you will you will agree. Now, this person was on that show. I think he had a crush on him. He played Detective David Starsky, Kimmy. Can you tell me the name of the actor? Yes. All right. First of all, it's Starsky and Hutch. Second yes. of all, it wasn't me that had a crush on him. Oh, I it thought was it was my you. friend. Oh, it was a friend of yours that yes. had the crush. You had a crush on the other I guy. I didn't like that. No. You liked Hutch, right? I didn't. Uh, you did. I didn't pl- like the show, Okay. Well, well, all right. Who played Hutch? David Soul. Yes. Now, who played Starsky? My, uh, Paul Michael Glacier. That's right. How old is Paul Michael Glacier today, Kimmy? Um, Within five. 68. He is 74 today. I think you did have a crush on him. Nope. It was you, wasn't it? Yeah, you just want a minute now. Moving over to somebody else having a birthday today. Born. This should be easy for you, Kimmy. Now, he's a singer, musician, but he was known, not really publicly known, but he was born with this name, and he would change it. His birth name is Reginald Kenneth Dwight. Can you tell me who the birthday person is? Elton John. That's right. Elton John having a birthday today. How old is he, Sir Elton John, within five? 78. Sir Elton John is 70 today. He has sold more than 300 million records, making him one of the best-selling music artists in the world. He has more than 50 top 40 hits, including seven consecutive number one U.S. albums, 58 Billboard top 40 singles. That's Elton John. I'm sure you have something of his in your collection. Of correct? course. All right. Next person, actress. Tell me how old she is, Kimmy. She is best known for the lead role of Carrie Bradshaw on the series Sex and the City. 
Sarah Jessica Parker. Yes, Sarah Jessica Parker. How old is she today? Within five. Uh, 52. That's exactly right. Now, in 1982, she was cast as a co-lead on a CBS sitcom that lasted just one season. Can you tell me the name of it? She was kind of a nerdy kind of girl. Square Pegs. Yeah, that's correct. And did you watch Square Pegs? Mm -hmm. You must have been one of the few that did, since it lasted only one season. And in 1997, she married an actor. Can you tell me whom? Uh, Matthew Broderick. That's correct. Now, before Matthew, she was involved with a certain big star who is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Can you tell me who she had a long relationship with, but because of his addiction problem, it, it didn't continue? Robert Downey Jr. Yes, that's correct. Now, moving over to somebody else having a birthday today, Kimmy. This person born in your neck of the woods, your stomping grounds. She was born in Beloit, Wisconsin, and grew up in nearby Roscoe, Illinois. She is an auto racer. She is the most successful woman in the history of American open wheel racing. Can you tell me who she is? Danica Patrick. That's right. How old is she? Within five years. Uh, 35. That's, that's exactly right. Now, did you meet her at any time? Because she really was in your back door at no. one time. She, mm -mm. By the way, she's in the world of comics. She appeared in Archie Comics Sonic Universe issue number 45. And moving over to another section of trivia for today. I see dead people. Notable death. See if you can tell me who this is, Kimmy. She passed away in 1992 at the age of 69. She's one of those individuals that looked a lot older than she was for years. She played on television in quite a few roles. Played in Macmillan and Wife as their maid. Also on another TV, well actually two TV shows that she was part of during that time period and prior to that time period, too, kind of around Macmillan and Wife. But she's also known for a certain television commercial campaign that lasted for a long time. Tell me who she is. Oh, that's very funny. But she needs Bounty. It's the quick picker-upper. Look, Bounty here, mild brand here. In they go. You see, Bounty absorbs more liquid faster. Strong, too. Sure, it's the quick picker-upper. Can you tell me who that is, Kimmy? Rosie? Oh, yeah, that's Rosie from the Bounty commercials. Now, tell me the name of the actress who played Rosie and also played Ida Morgenstern, the mother of Valerie Harper's character Rhoda on the show Rhoda and also part of the Mary Tyler Moore show. I can't. It's Nancy Walker. Mm, yeah, yeah. Died on this date. At the age of 69 in 1992. By the way, she was a film director. One film is all she did. In 1980, she made her feature film directorial debut, directing the, well, this is not a joke, the Village People's film with, yes, Bruce Jenner in the musical Can't Stop the Music. It was a box office flop, and that was her only film directing credit. Did you ever, now, will you admit it, did you see Can't Stop the Music? Mm-mm. Uh, do you want to see it? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, that, that wraps up our trivia for today, Kimmy. I think you did a fantastic job, and we're going to focus oh, on... Well, I didn't. Oh, you did, too. We, come on, this was some really weird stuff we asked you today, right? Horrible on the ages. Well, you... Well, Way uh, off base. Well, Jim Lovell, I mean, that was kind of... That uh, was really and, and there's really no excuse on that one, because you've actually know. been around Jim Lovell a couple of times. So I wasn't thinking. That's a... Well, we're used to that. <laughs> 
here Thank on the you. Riley and Kimmy Thank show. you very much. I think we'll focus on something from trivia today with the golden age of radio. Radio was Riley and Kimmy show. Anytime we have an opportunity to go back in time to the golden age of radio, the theater of the mind, we take that opportunity. And somebody who was no stranger to that world, to the golden age of radio, was Ed Begley Sr. He did a ton of radio work while he was doing film and stage two. Very, very busy and a very powerful actor who, unfortunately, I think is forgotten nowadays. So let's go back in time and honor him with a couple of episodes of the golden age of radio uninterrupted. Here's Ed Bagley Sr., born on this date, 1901, on the Riley and Kimmy Show. Signal, the famous go-farther gasoline. Invite you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. For extra driving pleasure, the signal to look for is the yellow and black circle sign that identifies signal service stations from Canada to Mexico. And for Sunday evening listening pleasure, the signal to listen for is this whistle that identifies the signal oil program, The Whistler. I am the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales, hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now the whistler's strange story, The Hermit. The storm made it all seem ghostly somehow, unreal. Ben's face at the window, the worried, frightened look in his eyes. For a moment, Harvey Wilson considered giving it all up and heading back to town in the railroad station. But the storm decided this, too. It was getting worse, and with his clothes already half-soaked, Harvey Wilson was in no mood to give up. He called out again insistently... Come on, Ben, open up. It's your old friend Harvey, Harvey Wilson. Oh, hey. I don't want to see anyone. Ben, for goodness sake, I'm just stopping through. You're going to make me go clear back to the station. Ben! Oh, that's better. I thought you weren't going to let me in. Well, what do you want? You've no reason to call on me, Wilson. Reasons, reasons. That's the trouble with the world. Always have to find reasons to call, excuses to visit. The old milk of human kindness is almost dry. I was just passing through, Ben. Yeah. You gonna let me stand out here till I'm drenched? All right. Come in. Well, nice fire going. Let me move there quick. Ah, better. Much better. Harvey Wilson. All right, now really, why did you come here? Just let me get this wet coat off. Well, like I said, I was passing through, Ben, heading up north. 
Still a salesman, still on the road, are you? That's right, Ben. Same old line. Yeah, I remember. You think what all the rest of them do, don't you, Harvey? Huh? Uh, about the money. All that money I'm supposed to have embezzled. You'd know plenty about it, Harvey. You talked to people from the company. Heard how they fired me. Ben, Ben, that was years ago. It's not too many years ago. I know what you're thinking. That I'm, I've been afraid to spend it, and I still have it. I think no such thing. Uh, you always were a sly one, Harvey. <laughs> Just passing through. <laughs> Just took you this long to find me, that's all. Ben, let's get one thing straight right away. I don't think you had anything to do with, with taking that money. Yeah. You don't believe me, do you? Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to think somebody believed. But you don't. Go ahead, say you don't. I can see, Ben. I know you. Mm, maybe you do, Harvey. I think I know you. Always did. You haven't changed much. Certainly not around the eyes. Still eager, aren't you? Oh, now, let's be friends. It's only for a few hours. Till morning, huh? You want to stay overnight? If you really don't mind. I do, but it's all right. I'll put you up, Harvey. Just this once. Now, there's a good friend. <laughs> You're all right, Ben. I always knew it. And you won't be sorry. <laughs> no, sir. Well, Harvey, you found him. Your old friend, Ben. He's living like a hermit here, isn't he? Afraid to spend the money he embezzled. But you're sure he has it, aren't you? And that it must be hidden somewhere in this old house. You wait a couple of hours after he shows you upstairs to a room. Then, when you're sure he's asleep, you let yourself out. Slip quietly down the hall to the stairs. The fire is still throwing a good light. And you move around the room, searching systematically. Checking the floorboards, the walls, when suddenly... Ben. Yes, Harvey. Your friend, Ben. <laughs> you believe me. You're like all of my relatives, the people who worked with Stay me. Stay away from me, Ben. Oh, no, you're getting out of here. I'm putting you ben, out. Ben, I warn Put you. Put it down, Harvey. That's my collection, my Just collection. Just a bookend, Ben. One that I'll use on you if... Put it down, I say. I'll put it down, all right. Harvey, no! You put the heavy bookend on the table. Stare down at the floor where Ben fell. And you realize he's dead. That you killed him. It's a terrible feeling at first, isn't it? And then you begin to wonder if you didn't expect something like this from the first. You want that money, don't you, Harvey? And you came here to get it. You can stay as long as you wish now without worry of interruption. With an effort, you drag Ben's body behind a heavy sofa in a far corner of the room, then go over to the fire again. You're standing there alone when you suddenly hear footsteps. Who is it? Who's there? Hello? Huh? Who's... I, I'm sorry. The front door wasn't locked. I... Well, you... You just walked in? I didn't mean to startle you, but the rain was... Uncle Ben! Uncle Ben, I'm not your... Oh, of course you don't remember me. I wouldn't remember you. I was a child when... You're... Joan Benton, your niece. Uncle Ben. Yes? Didn't you get my telegram? Telegram? Yes, I sent it yesterday, Uncle Ben. I've... I've come to spend a week with you. <laughs>
It's a shock, isn't it, Harvey? The suddenness of it all. Joan's arrival moments after you killed her uncle, Ben Masters. And now Joan thinks that you're her Uncle Ben, and she's come to spend the week here at the house. You could send Joan away, but you decide to let her stay, at least until you've been able to think it all out and find the money you're sure that Ben stole. Carefully, you get her out of the living room and show her upstairs to her room. Now, Harvey, you've got to move Ben's body. You decide on the cellar as the safest place. It's a struggle moving him that distance, but you manage it. Carry him into a small furnace room down there. Then you close the door of that furnace room, step back carefully, avoiding some freshly dug holes for new water pipes, and then... Huh? Who is it? It's me, Uncle Ben. Joan, I, I thought I said... I'm sorry, I, I can't sleep, Uncle Ben. Please. Well, don't, don't come down here, I'll be up. Fine thing, bursting into my house, wandering around. Just trouble, that's all. Relatives, just trouble. Uncle Ben, please. Can't we go in and fix the fire and talk a while? I'm just dying to talk to you, Uncle Ben. Please? All right. For a while, Joan. We'll talk. You didn't count on this, did you, Harvey? And your nerves can't take it much longer. The girl wants to talk, and not just for a while, like she said. Only fortunately, she does nearly all the talking. And it fills you in on Ben's family, his brother, Joan's father. Still, it's hours almost dawn before Joan finally decides to go to bed. Then you continue the search, and you wonder about Joan. Why she came here after not seeing Ben since early childhood. Wonder if her parents know she's here. She seems a nice girl, doesn't she, Harvey? Young, exciting. You almost wish you could talk to her, see how she would react to the truth. And you're still wondering about it as you hear the clock striking in the front hall. 6 a.m. And you've found nothing. Wonderful breakfast, my dear. You're an excellent cook. Thank you, Uncle Ben. <laughs> I did have a little trouble getting everything together. You know, finding things. I didn't want to disturb you. I... Very good jam, Miss, don't you think? Mm-hmm. You must be terribly fond of jam, Uncle Ben. Goodness, I never saw so many jars in anyone's cellar. Cellar? Why, why, yes. That's where I got this jar. Shouldn't I? Oh, wait. It's quite all right. I couldn't find any jam in the cupboards here, so... Um, may I have the sugar, my dear? Here you are. Uncle Ben. Yes? What's going on in the cellar? What? The floor. All that digging. Those holes. Oh, that. I... Uh, well, I've been having some trouble with the water pipes, you see. Oh, and... I thought it was something like that. Uh, more toast, Uncle Ben? <laughs> It was close, wasn't it, Harvey? And later you have cause for more concern. Writing a letter, my dear? Just a note to Mother. You know how she worries. Promised I'd write as soon as I arrived here. Telling her all about your trip, eh? That and about you. Oh? Uh, Joan, my dear, 
Yes? I, I wonder if I might add a postscript to your mother. Oh, would you, Uncle Ben? Just a few lines at the bottom of the letter, if you don't mind. Of course I don't mind. Here. You have no intention of adding just a few lines. No. It's just a precautionary measure, isn't it, Harvey? You read the letter quickly to make certain that she hasn't written anything to give you away. But you're quite safe, aren't you? It's just the type of letter you'd expect a girl like Joan to write. The, uh, having a fine time variety. And she's quite lavish in her praise of charming Uncle Ben. Very good. Here you are, my dear. But aren't you going to write anything? After such a beautiful letter, what could I say? Why don't you just add, Uncle Ben says hello, hmm? Well, all right. That evening, the opportunity to continue your search of the house presents itself. It's difficult to do much during the day, isn't it, Harvey? With a girl, Joan, always around you, you have so little time alone. You leave Joan at her bedroom door, say goodnight, and then hurry down the hall to your own room. Sitting in the darkness, you wait till finally the hall clock strikes 11. You tiptoe down the corridor, past Joan's room, hurry down to the library. As you're about to open the door, you hear someone moving about inside. And looking for something, my dear? Oh, oh, oh Uncle Ben, you frightened me. May I help you? I, I hope you don't mind my going through your desk like this. I was just looking for some writing paper. I seem to have used all mine. I see. Have you found any? Yes, here. It, it's all right if I take it, isn't it? Of course, Joan. Of course. Thanks. Well, good night again, Uncle Ben. Good night. As you watch the girl hurry from the room, the thought suddenly occurs to you. It's possible she's playing the same game you are, Harvey. Yes, it's possible she isn't really Ben Masters' niece at all. That she knows about the money, too, and is here to get it. You wait patiently until you're certain that she's sound asleep. Slip quietly into a room. Locate her suitcase and take it out into the hall. Inside, you find a letter. A letter addressed to... Mrs. Paul Gates. Yes, Harvey. Mrs. Paul Gates. Not Joan Benton, the name she told you. Another name. The following morning, after another night of fruitless searching for the money, you're starting down to breakfast when you overhear Joan talking softly to someone on the telephone. Yes, it's you hurry right. forward, quietly straining to, to listen. It'll work out perfectly. What? No, he doesn't suspect a thing. I've got to ring off now. He may hear me. Yes, I'll be careful. Bye. Oh! Oh, you startled me, Uncle Ben. Oh? Sorry. Have a nice sleep? Not too nice, no. Oh? Nightmares or something? As a matter of fact, it was a nightmare, Joan. I dreamt you turned out to be someone else. Not really my niece at all. Oh, really? Fantastic thing. You were here to steal my money. 
I became so angry when I found out I wanted to kill you. Uncle Ben. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm frightening you. Mmm, that bacon smells good. Would you like scrambled eggs this morning? Fine, Joan. Fine. You watch her closely during breakfast, but she betrays no sign of fear. Breakfast over, you leave her in the kitchen, hurry down to the cellar, and continue your search for the money. But the money isn't to be found. Then upstairs, as you walk along the front hall, you hear sounds from the den and decide to go down. What? What are you doing, Joan? Oh, just tidying up. Dusting. You shouldn't be moving that heavy furniture, child. Oh, it's nothing, really. You don't mind, do you, Uncle Ben? My sort of taking over, doing things. I'm afraid you're not a very good housekeeper. No, I don't suppose I am, Joan. It's a smart move on her part, isn't it, Harvey? If she's really looking for the money. Cleaning house gives her the perfect opportunity to search each room carefully, inspect every piece of furniture. After she's gone, you begin to move the pieces of furniture back into place. And then it happens. Suddenly, quite by accident, as you slide a small bookcase into place, one of its edges strikes the wall sharply. A section of the paneling gives away and swings back on rusty hinges. Quickly, you slide the bookcase out of the way, and then you see it. The small wall safe, unlocked and empty. Joan got here before you, didn't she, Harvey? You whirl around, hurry from the den, and as you step out into the hall... Oh, Uncle Ben! You stop suddenly. Joan is standing by the front door, and there's someone with her. Uncle Ben, this gentleman's car ran out of gas. He, he wonders if he might use the phone. I uh, want to call the signal station down the road. Why, of course, my dear. Go right ahead, young man. Well, lucky thing for me, I stalled practically outside your door. Sorry to disturb you. It's quite all right. You turn, walk back into the den and close the door, trying to act unconcerned. Then you hurry to the den window, see the young man's car parked off the road behind a tree. You slip into a raincoat, hurry outside. At the car, you find the key still in the ignition. You turn it on. The gas gauge shows that the tank is half full. And then something else. The registration on the steering post. Paul D. Gates. I knew it. Yes, you're certain, aren't you, Harvey? Paul D. Gates, the girl's husband. Her partner in a clever ruse to take Uncle Ben's stolen money. You consider taking the car and running. But the thought of the money holds you. You came here for it, didn't you? You're going to get it at any cost. Oh, Uncle Ben, come in. Uh, the man at the station is sending someone out right away. You don't mind if he waits here a while, do you, Uncle Ben? No, 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 of course not, my dear. I, I'm sure they'll be along soon. <laughs> in no hurry anyway, I, I'm rather enjoying the conversation with your niece. Well, get on with it then. You don't mind if I sort of horn in, do you? Why, no. No, of course not, Uncle Ben. You sit back in the easy chair, watch them closely, listen to them make idle chatter. 
They're clever, aren't they, Harvey? Cool and clever. But they're not clever enough to fool you. You're certain that Joan has the money. You're just waiting for the opportunity to slip away. But they're not going to, are they? And as the minutes tick by, a plan begins to take shape in your mind. Finally, you decide to put your plan into operation. Uh, Joan, my dear, perhaps the gentleman would enjoy a cup of tea. I'm sure I would. Oh, don't go to any trouble. Oh, it's no trouble at all. I'll just be a few minutes. Smoke? Why, yes, thank you. Good cigars, these. Have them made special. Uh, light? Thank you. Say, this is a good cigar. Glad you like it. Say, are you by any chance interested in Chinese art? Well, <laughs> never thought much about it one way or the other. But I must say, you do have some beautiful things here, sir. I think so. Now, take this pair of bookends, for example. Ever see anything like one of these? Mm, they're beautiful. They're heavy, too. Yes, quite heavy. Oh, isn't that the service truck from the gas station? What? Out front. You can see it there from that window. Where? I don't... <laughs> You stoop quickly to drag the unconscious Mr. Gates out of the way, and then freeze, fascinated as you stare down at the floor. The bookend, Harvey, from old Ben's collection. It smashed as you dropped it after striking Gates a glancing blow. And you see that it's filled with currency and large bills. So you found old Ben's hiding place. He did take the money and hide it. And now you have it. Huh? Oh, Joan. It's all right. You can drop the act now. What have you done to him? Your friend is out for a while, my dear. The money. You have it? Yes, most of it. I imagine there's a good deal more on that other bookend. No wonder they were made so large. I, I don't understand why you hit him. You're a very clever young lady, Joan. Or rather, Mrs. Paul Gates. Yes, clever. But you don't fool me one bit. What? You and your Mr. Gates. I suspect it from the start. You better sit down, my dear, while I decide what to do with you and your husband. This money is mine, and I'm keeping it. It's time for the showdown, isn't it, Harvey? And you congratulate yourself. You were smart enough to see through her plan, weren't you? You're certain she was after the money. That she planned to get help in taking it from you. Sent for her husband and partner, Paul Gates. But he can't help her now, can he? You've taken care of him. He's unconscious. And now you're going to take care of Joan. You watch her as she stares at you, puzzled. So, you did take the money. You had it all the time. Not all the time, my dear. Yes, you did. I believed you. Told everybody at home that you were too nice to have stolen anything, ever. What are you talking about? Paul is my husband, like you discovered. We were passing through town, and I decided to look you up. Now, don't give me that. You came for the money. Here, what are you doing? I can make him more comfortable while we talk. Oh, poor Paul. You might have killed him in your anger. All this mistrust in the world. 
I thought Mother and Dad and Uncle Frank were all wrong about you. Just stubborn, like when they disapproved of my marriage to Paul. I thought we were two misunderstood people. That's why I looked you up. Will you stop this crazy act? It isn't an act, not with me, only with you. You're a thief, just like they thought. I'm sorry I phoned them now. What will they think? Phone them? You, you've asked someone else to come here? Yes, the whole family. Mother, Dad, my brothers. I thought we'd have a reunion. All try to understand one another. That's why Paul was stalling you, waiting for them to get here. Hello? Just a minute. Don't come in. I... Yes, all of you. Come in. Mother, Dad. Well, hello. What's all this? What happened to Paul? Uncle Ben did it, Dad. Uncle, Uncle ben, ben? He hit him. Knocked him out. He thought we were after his stolen money. But where is he, Joan? Where is Uncle Ben? What did you say? Your mother said, where is Uncle Ben? If this man isn't Uncle Ben, I... I can't tell you. You'll have to ask this imposter. Or maybe... In that case, we better call the police. Let them ask him. Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. Signal has asked me to remind you to get the most driving pleasure, drive at sensible speeds, be courteous, and obey traffic regulations. It may save a life, possibly your own. Featured in tonight's story were Ed Begley and Betty Moran. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Ben S. Hunter, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. invite you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. I am The Whistler, and I know many things for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's strange story. Flee from evil. There was almost...
almost complete darkness around the parked car on the lonely road on the outskirts of Seattle. And the man at the wheel, heavy set and 50-ish, tried to peer through this darkness. He couldn't see, but he could imagine what was taking place some 50 yards further up the road. A raised gun, careful aim, and then... The shot that Bert Macklin was waiting to hear. Shot followed by the sound of running feet. A few moments later, Bert's nephew had run to the car, leaped inside, and Bert had the motor running, the car in gear, moving forward. Swing around, Uncle Bert. We'll, we'll go back the way we came. Right. You got him? Yes. Yes, I got him. Hey, look out. You're getting up the road. We'll get stuck. Yeah, I stuck. Oh, oh, you've got to get out of here. You keep stepping on it, Now I'll, I'll give her a push. Let up! Let up! Now! One, two, three! That's it! She's free! Come on. Now, let's, let's go, Uncle Bert. Get us away from here. Fast! Nothing to worry about now, Freddy. Uh, you're sure you took care of him? Uh, that's what I came here for. All the way from London. Yes, I, I took care of him, I'm sure. You didn't get a look at him? No, it was too dark, but he was sitting at the wheel of his car, and I, I, I slipped up alongside. I see. Well, maybe it's over. Really over, at last. <laughs> There's no maybe about it. All right, but... Well, after a month of paying off, wondering when I'd be tapped again... It doesn't seem possible that I'm rid of him, Freddy. Uh, inheriting money does have its drawbacks, hmm? Decidedly. <sighs> Good thing the fellow was only getting started. Even my entire inheritance could go fast that way. Yeah. You better slow down, Uncle Bert. We're almost into town. We'll go directly back to the party, give some excuse. And, Freddy, hmm? you've done me a great favor. Yes, and you're going to show your appreciation, of course, our bargain, you know? I'll never forget this, your help what you just did back there. It'll be healthier for me if you do forget it right now. Killing a man, even a blackmailer, well, there's some sort of law, isn't there, Uncle Bert? I prefer the other law. The one you mentioned earlier this evening. An eye for an eye. Yes, you did say that, didn't you, Freddy? An eye for an eye. You were quite willing to lend a hand, so eager to cooperate. You feel a surge of confidence back at the house facing the others as Uncle Bert extends his apologies for being away. Oh, sorry, Lloyd. Veronica, we didn't intend to be gone so long, you know. Quite all right, old man. We went for a spin in Uncle Bert's new car. He, he's already imagining all sorts of things wrong with it. Oh, not at all. I, I just wanted Freddie to try it out. He's very handy with machines, you know. My, he is talented, isn't he? Oh, I don't know, Veronica. Uh, I say, where's... Uh, Uncle Frank. Oh, uh, he left here shortly after you two did. Said he suddenly remembered a business appointment. Oh, a business appointment? Frank had a business appointment? Well, it uh, must have been rather important for him to walk out when so many drinks are being passed around. Uh, drinks? Uh, oh, now, look here, Freddy. If any drinks were passed, they were passed right by me. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry what we told Mrs. Fell to act as hostess until we got oh. back. Oh, your uncle's housekeeper made it quite clear to us that if we wanted any drinks while you two were gone, we'd have to fix them ourselves. 
dinner, she said, is the only thing she'd attend to this evening. Oh, did she? Well, I told her we'd only be gone a little while, the old gargoyle. Oh, come now, Freddy. <laughs> Look, I'll attend to the drinks right away. Uh, why don't we all go into the bar? Hmm? Yeah, Wonderful yeah, idea. Yeah. Sure. Uh, are you coming, Uncle Bert? Uncle Bert? Huh? Oh, oh yes. Oh, Freddy. Just a minute. Uh, what's the matter? Frank. Freddy. You don't suppose Frank's the one? Uncle Frank? What? No, I never thought of that. It is funny, his having a business appointment just after we left the party to keep our appointment with your blackmailer. Could have been, you know. We'll find out soon enough. There's not much we can do now. No. Oh, I can't believe it, Uncle Frank. Frank's not really your uncle, Freddy. He's my half-brother. I wouldn't put it past him, sponging off me the way he's been doing those... Who could that be? Uh, let's see. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, let's see now. You'd be Mr. Bert Macklin, and you'd be Mr. Friend. Oh, well, what is it? My card. Sidney uh, Hawker, private investigator. I don't understand, Mr. Hawker. You will. I'd like to come in for a little talk, if you don't mind. Oh, that, that's quite impossible. We have dinner guests. Oh, of course. Naturally, you wouldn't want them to hear what I had to say. Now, see here. What, what is the nature of your business? It all ties in rather neatly with that little display you and Freddy here put on a little while ago in the outskirts of town. Uh, Fred, I think we'd best step outside. Close the door. Now, Mr. Harker, if you'll get to the point. Well, that shooting a little while ago... That was me that Freddy Boy pumped those bullets into. Or rather, it was my overcoat. Uh, you'll notice the holes. What's it? Yeah, I uh, rolled up a few blankets, put my overcoat around them, my hat on top, and left it slumped over the wheel of the car. Oh. I shot at a dummy. I see. Merely acting on behalf of my client. Client? That's right. These days, I'm forced to take anything that comes along. Uh, not of the business at hand, gents. As you know, my client has definite proof, Mr. Macklin, that the death of a former associate of yours was anything but accidental. Your uh, former associate's name was Edward Wilson. This information could be dropped into a mailbox to the police. Unless I pay. Uh, you see, Freddy, it isn't over. What do you want, Mr. Hawker? How much? Well, my client feels, in view of what's happened this evening, the attempted murder... That uh, this payment should be 5000 5000 Freddy, do you... Uh, take it easy, Uncle Bert. We haven't any choice. Uh, where do we deliver the money, Mr. Hawker? My office will do, Freddy boy. Say about uh, 9 tomorrow evening. Good night, gents. We're licked, Freddy. Beaten. Through. <laughs> Funny. Funny? I fail to see the humor of it. No, I mean, I... I'm, I'm not a murderer after all, am I? <laughs> no, that's right. You're not. During dinner, you watch your Uncle Bert closely. His eyes wander about the table, settling on one guest and then another. And you know what he's thinking about, don't you? Uncle Frank could still be the blackmailer, couldn't he? You know that thought is going through your Uncle Burke's mind. Then there's Lloyd Gillis, an associate at the lumber mill. He could be Mr. Hawker's uh, client. Yes. Either one of them could know about Burke's dead colleague. 
the one who was supposed to have committed suicide. And occasionally, Freddy, you feel Uncle Bert's eyes are on you, too. Dinner over, you take Veronica home. Then return to the house. You find Uncle Bert has something on his mind. Freddy. Huh? This girl, Veronica. What do you know about her? Well, how much does one know about anyone you meet on a boat trip? Why? I was just wondering about her. Oh, you mean you think that she could... Oh, no, that's nonsense. She, she's just here visiting a sick sister, helping out for a bit, that's all. No, if you ask me, Uncle Frank's your blackmailer. It could be anybody, Freddy. Even you. Me? Oh, oh, now, really, isn't that a bit thick? Are you forgetting you asked me to come here all the way from London a month ago to help you out? Yes, I did ask you. We made a bargain. You were to help me get this blackmailer off my neck. In return, I was to make you my sole heir. Yes. And if I might point out, you had already been approached by the blackmailer while I was still in London. That's right. I had been approached, but through an intermediary. That's something else I've been thinking about. Why should a blackmailer share his good fortune with a go-between, eh? Because he doesn't wish to reveal his identity to me or because he doesn't happen to be on the scene at the moment. He could be anywhere. Even in London, Freddy. Oh, really, Uncle Bert? You're letting this thing get you. <laughs> no, you, you'd better stick with Uncle Frank for your blackmailer. Well, I, I'm going to turn in, get some sleep. Um, you'll have the money tomorrow night, hmm? Yes. I'll see what I can do. Good night, Freddy. You're worried, aren't you, Fred? Because the thing that brought you here from London, your Uncle Bert's money he's promised to leave you in his will, is slowly slipping away. And you're powerless to prevent it. Yes, Uncle Bert's past is threatening your future. And you're even more certain of it the following evening as you sit in Sid Hocker's office and wait as he calls his client. Hello, this is Hocker. Yes, he's here now. But with only half the money. I know, but he says the rest is tied up at the moment. It'll be a week at least before he can manage the rest. He says he'll have the rest in another week. Right. Fun? Got it. My client isn't very happy, Freddy boy. But he is giving us more time. One week, Freddy boy. No more. It's while you're walking back to the house that an idea strikes you suddenly. You want to find Uncle Bert's blackmailer, don't you? Yes. But instead of getting rid of him, you wonder about joining forces with him. Then you could start collecting on Uncle Bert's money now, rather than wait years to inherit it. Inside the house, you hurry to the telephone, pick it up, and toy with the dial, counting the clicks. Interesting, isn't it, Frank? If you can learn to count the clicks perfectly and listen again when Sid Hocker calls his client and then remember the sound pattern, you'd have it, wouldn't you, Fred? The phone number of your uncle's blackmailer. Once you know that, Fred, you can contact the blackmailer directly. Offer him your valuable assistance in blackmailing Uncle Bert and split the money with him. One. George. 
With a little more practice, I know I can do it. After that, I'll have everyone just where I want them. beginning when you first discovered that your Uncle Bert was being blackmailed and your own future fortunes threatened. Yes, you were willing to commit murder to prevent it. But the attempted murder backfired and the blackmailer doubled his price. But now you feel you're in command again, that your little plan will pay off. A few days of practice and you can tell any phone number now when you hear it being dialed by counting the clicks, remembering the sound pattern. Yes. All you have to do is listen carefully the next time you're with Sid Hocker when he calls his client. Then a great idea hits you. True, it's a dangerous one. Something could go wrong. But it's worth considering carefully, isn't it? And it's constantly on your mind in the days that follow. Then on the evening of your appointment with Hocker to pay the rest of the money you promised, you step into the study, find Uncle Bert standing at the window, staring out into the night. It's almost eight, Uncle Bert. Uh, Oh, Freddy. Well, hadn't I better be getting over to Hawker's? You don't have to be there till nine. Perhaps you won't get there at all. You you, you mean you didn't manage to get the rest of the money? Oh, I got it all right. It's just that I'm not certain I want to turn it over to Hawker's client. I've been trying to make up my mind all day. Oh, now look here, Uncle Bert. I know, I know. If I don't pay up, Mr. Hawker's client will expose me. Perhaps that's what I really want. Get it over with once and for all. Why should I go on paying and paying and paying... You bleed me white. But I thought we'd agreed the other day that you'd go on paying for a while at least and bide your time. He's bound to make a mistake. If I could be sure. No, I say pay off this chap. Pay as long as you're able. It, it's better than the noose. Hmm? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it will take time and money, but it'll be worth it. Perhaps you're right, Freddy. We'll catch up to Mr. Hawker's client. You'll see. All right. Bring the car around. I'll get the money out of the safe. Uncle Bert had you worried for a moment, didn't he, Fred? Yes. You saw your entire plan collapse, and all that easy money slipping from your grasp. But suddenly, it was all right again. And Uncle Bert agreed to go on paying his blackmailer. Now, with the money tucked away in your coat pocket, you drive downtown to Hawker's office. Good evening, Mr. Hawker. Well, 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 Mr. Macklin. Johnny on the spot, eh? And with the money? Johnny on the spot, yes. With the money, no. Huh? What's this? No, you see, Mr. Hawker, Uncle's had a bit of difficulty raising the money. Now, see here, my no, client... All he asks is a few hours. I see. Uh, do you think that will be agreeable to your client, Mr. Hawker? It might be, and then again it might not. Uh, why don't you ask your client? All right, I will. You sit at the edge of the desk. Try to appear calm as Hawker steps to the telephone and picks it up. You listen carefully as he dials. Hello, this is Sin Hawker. Right. Uh, there's been a delay. Mr. Macklin's having a bit of trouble raising the money. What? Oh, no, no. 
All he wants is a little more time. Huh? Right. Got it. Uh, let me talk to your client, Mr. Hunt. Yeah, no, none of that. Look, I only wanted to, to... I'll answer any questions you have. Is that clear? No. As you wish. You'll just have to call your client again. I can afford it. Well? My uncle is ready to make a settlement. Tonight. He's willing to pay $20,000 if your client will turn over every shred of evidence he holds against my uncle and drop the matter once and for all. 20000 eh? Well, now... Uh... That sounds reasonable. Well, suppose you see if your client thinks so. Right. But mind you, no tricks. No tricks. You've got to make certain, don't you, Fred? And you listen carefully as he dials the number again. It's the same number he dialed before, isn't it? There's no mistake. And you're confident now you'll be able to dial that same number when the time comes. Well, Mr. Hawker? It's a grebel. But my client wants the money delivered here by 11 tonight. Good. I'll see you then, Mr. Hawker. You hurry out of the office, downstairs into your car. From the glove compartment, you remove a gun. You slip it into your pocket. As you start back, you see Hawker walk out of the building, head for the parking lot in the rear. Quickly, you move after him. Then in the darkness behind the building, you catch up to him as he slides in behind the wheel of his car. Oh, Hawker. Hey, oh. oh, it's you. Hey, what's the idea of the gun? Move over, hmm? What are you doing? I said move over. Oh, wait a minute. That's a good shot. Oh, uh, start up, Hawker. We're going for a bit of a spin. Uh, I think this will do, Hawker. A nice, dark, deserted road. Splendid place for a chap, hmm? What's the idea? Pull over, old man. All right. Now what? Well, first off, that, that, that business about Uncle wanting to make a settlement. That was a bit of a trick on my part, I'm afraid. What? Yes, you see, I, I was merely interested in having you dial that phone again. What are you talking about? I had to make certain I had the right number. You see, Harker, by simply listening to the dial as it spins, counting the number of you, clicks... You mean you can... Oh, yes. Yes, I can dial that number again with very little difficulty. Now, are you going to tell me who the blackmailer is? Or must I find out for myself? You don't know yet? Would it be Frank Macklin by any chance? Who's he? Or Lloyd Gillis, perhaps? Never heard of him. I don't recognize the number at all. Of course, it could be a booth somewhere or a little hideaway, an apartment. I wouldn't know. I see well, if you won't cooperate, I shall have to find out by calling. I'm rather certain I'll recognize the voice, and I shall be most careful not to reveal my own identity, of course. Well, now that that's settled, what more do you want with me? I ain't no goody anymore. That's right. However, inasmuch as I intend to do business with your client, a sort of partnership arrangement in the near future... So that's it. You're going to be part of the scheme from now on, eh? Yes. And my plans do not include you, I'm afraid. <laughs> Does that uh, upset you? Yes, I'm sure it does. Now, I shouldn't want you around, Mr. Hawker, to slip the word to dear Uncle Bert and tell him what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah. What do you mean? Oh, it's obvious, quite obvious, isn't it, old man? No, no, wait. No, I'm wait. sorry, Mr. Hawker. As you so aptly put it, you ain't no good to me anymore.
It's done, isn't it, Fred? Harker is dead. The threat has been removed. And he lies buried in a shallow grave on the outskirts of town. Now all you have to do is call the blackmailer. And once you've learned his identity without revealing your own, you expect to approach him again later, cautiously, inform him of your plan for a partnership to continue to blackmail your uncle together. And you certainly won't refuse, because you then reveal his identity to Uncle Bert. You drive back to town, park Hawker's car on the lot behind his office building, and then hurry upstairs. As you sit at Hawker's desk, you glance at your watch, and a smile covers your face. Yes. You're confident now that you've made the right decision, aren't you? Hello, Freddy. But, Uncle Bert, what are you doing here? Looking for Sid Hawker. I thought I might persuade him to tell me who the blackmailer is, confirm my suspicions with this. Oh, no, 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 Uncle Bert, you put that gun away. Hawker's not here. So I see. Delivering the money to his client, I suppose. Uh, yes. I think you should know, Freddy, that I contacted the police tonight. What? Yes, I told the police why I was being blackmailed, that I killed a man some time ago. I was going to give myself up, but I was going to get the blackmailer first. That's why I came here. I was sure Hawker could lead me to the blackmailer. But I, I, I thought that I was going to go on paying. No, I decided against that shortly after you left the house tonight. Oh, really? Well, that, uh, that wasn't very clever. No, and you're going to regret it, Freddy. Oh, what? Oh, I've suspected for a long time you were behind all this. Why, well, that, that, that's ridiculous. Is it? Let's see if my hunch is right. Empty your pockets. My, my pockets? I'll give you three. Oh, now, now, wait, wait a minute. One, two. Uh, all right. All right. That's better. Well, well, you do have the money. My hunch was right. I can explain. So, Harker paid off his client, eh? Now... Uncle Bert, if, if, if you'll only listen... No, I could forgive you, stealing money from me, but not blackmailing me, Freddy. No, you, no, you don't understand this. I haven't blackmailed you. Look, I, 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 I'll find the blackmailer for you. None of your tricks. Put that phone down. Well, let me call a number. I swear you'll hear the blackmailer's voice with your own ears. I'm not that stupid. Me fall for a trick like that. And it is a trick, isn't it, Freddy? If you want to catch me off guard, get close enough to me so you can get this gun. No, it's not a trick. All right. We'll see. But you'd better not try any tricks. I'll listen in, yes. But on this extension phone over here. But remember, Freddy, I'll have this gun on you. I've already confessed one murder to the police. Another one won't matter much. Go ahead. Make your call. Everything depends on this phone call, doesn't it, Fred? Your hand is steady, sure, as you dial. You know there can't be any mistake. But this is the number Hawker called. You're certain it's the phone number of his client, the blackmailer. At the tone, the time will be 10, 9, and 40 seconds. <gasps> Hawker. Hawker was the blackmailer all the time. No. It was you, Freddy. That phone call you just made was a trick. And a very stupid one. No. No, Uncle Bert, wait! Shut! At the tone, the time will be ten. Ten exactly.
Let that whistle be your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Signal Oil Company has asked me to remind you that there's an easy way we can all help to make this holiday season happier for ourselves and others. Drive at sensible speeds, be courteous, and obey traffic regulations. It may save a life, possibly your own. Tonight's story were Bill Foreman, Ben Wright, Ed Begley, Constance Cavendish, and Ted DeCorsia. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Adrian Jean Doe, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. famous go-farther gasoline invites you to sit back and enjoy another strange story by The Whistler. I am The Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now for the Signal Oil Company, the Whistler's strange story, Ski Master. With the winter carnival approaching, Sylvana's skiing lodge in the Rocky Mountains was a beehive of activity, revolving about the handsome ski master, Carl Gordon. Carl was an American, but had spent many years in the Bavarian Alps. Following the close of World War II, he had returned to America and served as ski master at resorts on both coasts and in Canada. And now, Carl, you watch idly as gaily dressed sports lovers swarm through the lodge lobby. Laughing, happy people from all over the world. Suddenly, your glance falls on a middle-aged man. He doesn't look like a sports enthusiast, does he, Carl? You watch him closely as he surveys the lobby with a look of disdain, and then hurries over to a striking young woman sitting in the corner. You edge closer, Carl, straining to hear. Dr. Prentice, you here? Yes, Clarinda, I flew. From New York? Yes, I left the minute I read about your skiing accident. And you came all the way across the country because you read that I'd hurt my ankle? Why, you darling. Then it's not serious? Why not at all? The doctor in the village fixed it up very well. Good. By the way, there was something else in the column. Yes? A mention of a romance between you and the local ski master. Well, I don't see how that could have been printed. No one here knows anything about it. It's a secret between Carl and me. A girl who has one of the largest fortunes in the country can have no secrets. No, I'm afraid not. But uh, what about this romance? What's his name? Carl Gordon. And I'm in love with him. Carl Gordon? American, eh? Usually these ski instructors are Well, Carl spent a great deal of time in Bavaria during the war. Also in Switzerland. Yes, yes. Uh, Tell me, Clorinda, does your father know? No, I hope not. You know he'd try to stop it. But... What about this Gordon? Who is he? How do you know he isn't after your money? Not Carl. I know he loves me. 
not my money. I hope so. When do I meet him? Oh, right away. I'm sure he's around. Oh, Carl! Uh, yes, Miss Rogers. Dr. Prentice, may I present Carl Gordon? How do you do? I'm honored, Dr. Prentice. Dr. Prentice has just arrived, Carl. He's one of my father's oldest friends. Oh? Have you come for the sports carnival, Doctor? As a matter of fact, no. But I think I might remain. Oh, oh Doctor, can you do that? Oh, I think I can arrange it. Then you shall give me away. Give you away? Yes, at my wedding. Carl and I are planning to be married during the carnival. Well, congratulations, Mr. Gordon. Thank you, Doctor. I suppose you are very happy about this. Yes, indeed. I'm the happiest man in the world. And you are happy, aren't you, Carl? At last, your dream is about to be realized. A wife with money, a big fortune. This is what you've been striving for all these years. Why you chose skiing as a profession in the first place. But things hadn't worked out as you planned, had they, Carl? No. Not after you married Frida, beautiful country girl in Switzerland before the war. After the bombing of Munich came the news that Frida was killed. But that's all in the past, isn't it, Carl? Now you have a fine future as the husband-to-be of a very rich woman. And you're determined to let nothing spoil it. Later, when you meet Dr. Prentice in the bar, you try to avoid it. Care for a drink, Mr. Gordon? Uh, no, no, thank you, Doctor. I seldom drink. But uh, surely a glass of kirsch. Well, all right, Doc, if you insist. Waiter, two glasses of kirsch, please. I might as well come straight to the point, Mr. Gordon. What's this about your planning to marry Clorinda Rogers? Oh, we're very much in love. No doubt you think so. I've known Clorinda all her life. She's been engaged to half a dozen men. Naturally. She's very lovely. And very rich. You're very unkind. Clorinda's impressionable, fickle. She was in love with a music teacher when she was only a child. Her father sent him away. Then it was her tennis instructor, a golf pro, and a lifeguard. I don't see how this concerns Miss Rogers and me. She did not marry any of these men, Gordon. And she won't marry you. I think she will. No, she won't. Not if I can find a way to prevent it. And I certainly intend to. The doctor's manner is infuriating, isn't it, Carl? And you wonder what he's going to do. He has a great influence on Clorinda, there's no doubt about that. And he'll probably try to prevent your being alone with her. The three of you are at dinner when Mr. Wood, the manager of the lodge, comes to your table. You have nothing to worry about, Dr. Prentice. I've arranged for you to keep your room throughout the carnival. Well, that's very nice of you. I realize how crowded you are. Oh, now, don't mention it. No trouble is too great for a friend of Miss Rogers. Thank you, Mr. Wood. You're very kind. <laughs> is everything satisfactory? Very. I must compliment you on the excellent service in spite of the crowd. Thank you. Fortunately, the extra waitresses arrived this afternoon. They look quite colorful. Yes. We always dress them in Bavarian costumes for the sports carnival. We're starting in a bit early this year. Now, if there's anything you want, anything at all. Those Bavarian costumes are very effective, aren't they, Mr. Gordon? Why, yes, Doctor, they are, in a way. Oh, look, Carl, that girl over there. The one with the long blonde braid. Oh? She looks like a real Bavarian, doesn't she? Uh, yes. Yes, I suppose she does. Well, what's the matter, Carl? You aren't yourself tonight. Oh, really? Well, 
I'm sorry. Perhaps I'm, I'm a bit tired. Tired? With a physique like yours? Nonsense. Tell you the truth, Gordon. You act as if you'd just seen a ghost. And you have seen a ghost, haven't you, Carl? The new waitress. The one with the long, blonde braids. The resemblance is remarkable. A little older and thinner, perhaps. But so much the same. And you must know at once. Quickly, you excuse yourself and leave the dining room. You take a short walk to steady your nerves. Later, you go to the back door of the kitchen where the waitresses will come out, restlessly pace up and down, remaining in the shadows. Finally, the girls come out in pairs, laughing and talking together as they go down the path to the servants' quarters. At last, she comes out, alone, the one with the blonde braids. You make sure that you aren't observed, and then you start down the path after her and call softly. Rita. Frida. Who is it? Will somebody call me? Yes, Frida. I called you. Oh, no. It isn't. It couldn't be. Frida, be quiet. But, Carl, it's you. It's you, my husband. Oh, oh Carl, I've found you at last. Things have taken a strange turn, haven't they? Just when your future seemed assured, your marriage to wealthy Clorinda Rogers about to become a reality, your wife Frida, the wife you thought was dead, has turned up from the past. But you're not going to let anything interfere and spoil things, are you, Carl? No. Somehow you must find a way out. Only you'll need time, won't you, to think things over and work out a plan. You stand almost petrified, staring at Frida as she continues to talk. And then... But, Carl, you are so quiet. Why do you not say something? Well, it's... It's such a shock to me, Frida. But a happy one, Carl. Oh, yes, of course, but I... I, I, I thought you were dead, the bombing of Munich. Our home was bombed. I lost everything. But I was saved. I was with the displaced persons. So long. You tried to find me, Carl? Oh, of course, of course. I tried hard to find you. I wrote everywhere... But no one knew of Carl Gruber. Well, I, uh... I, I changed my name to Carl Gordon. But why? Oh, it's easier to pronounce, you know, more American. After all, Frida, I am an American. Yes. So now I am Mrs. Carl Gordon. Mrs. Carl Gordon. Hush, Frida, not so loud. But why not? Well, I'm the skiing master here. They want only single men for skiing masters in America. Oh? But why? Well, it's, it's the custom... If anyone finds out we're married, I'll be fired. Now, you wouldn't want that, would you? Oh, no, Carl. Of course not. You must act as though you've never seen me before. Can you do that? I will try. Good. And we can both keep our jobs and work hard and save our money. So that we can be together, always. Yes, Rita. Always. You will come to my cabin, Carl? There it is. The one way in the back. Yes, Frida, but not tonight. I, I, I'm busy. But when, Carl? Tomorrow night. After dinner. Say, uh, about ten. I will be waiting. Good night, Carl. 
Well, Carl, one thing is clear. Frida hasn't changed. She'll never let you go, will she? But you have until tomorrow night to think things out. And you feel certain that she won't talk. But you know you'll have to be careful. Very careful. Make certain Frida doesn't see you with Clorinda Rogers. You know Frida's jealousy, the bitter quarrels in the past over your attentions to other women. So the next morning, you carefully avoid Clorinda. But later, she finds you on the terrace. Oh, Carl, darling. Where have you been all morning? Giving lessons. I've missed you. Well, now you have the company of your friend, Dr. Prentice. Well, I'm not so sure that he is my friend, Carl. What makes you think that, dear? Now, Carl, you won't get angry. You won't think that I'm a child tied to apron strings. Uh, What is it, Clorinda? You can tell me. Well, uh, you're going to meet someone. My friend, as you call him, Dr. Prentice. He arranged this. Arranged what? For my father to come here for the sports carnival, Dr. Prentice says. And father hates winter sports. Dr. Prentice just sent for him to try to break up our marriage. No one can do that. Uh, Where is he, Clorinda? Your father. Oh, you're not angry then? Not at all. Oh, darling, it's going to be all right. At the first possible opportunity, we'll drive into the village and we'll get our marriage license. Right. Now, Clorinda, shouldn't you introduce your fiancé to your father? Yes, of course, Carl. Father and Dr. Prentice, well, they're in the cocktail lounge. Come along, darling. Clorinda, I must say, you've been keeping something from me. Had I known such places as this existed... It is fun, isn't it, Father? And I'm so pleased that you approve of Carl. Huh? Um, uh, yes, uh, you seem quite captivated by the atmosphere of Sylvana Lodge, sir. Yes, he even surprises me on that score. I dare say, Doctor. Uh, yes, uh, beautiful view out this window, don't you think, Clorinda? Very much like uh, the Bavaria. Yes, Father. The Bavaria. I understand you've been there, Carl. Yes, I have. You watch me from the top. No, I will go down, Carl. Here I go. Frida. Frida, you hurt. I don't know. Oh, how stupid of me to fall. What happened? Carl, I I will never be able to ski anymore. You can walk. Yes. Yes, I I think so. You will help me up, Carl? Yes, dear. I'll help you. Yeah. Now, look, Frida, if if you can make it all right, we'd better go back separately. There's a shortcut just around that turn. You go that way, huh? I understand. We don't want you to be fired. You are all right now. Oh, yes, Carl. I'm all right now. That's fine. This is my day off. I can rest. I will stay in my cabin all day. That's a good idea, Frida. Yes, stay in your cabin all day. Mr. Wood. Mm-hmm. Oh, hello, Carl. Uh, Miss Rogers wants me to go to the village with her this afternoon. Anything to please Miss Rogers? We'll be gone a few hours. But it's starting to snow. There may be a storm. I know. We're going to use the sleigh. Oh, well, fine, fine. Oh, by the way, uh, would you mind not mentioning to anyone where we've gone? <laughs> of course not, if Miss Rogers doesn't want it known. No, she doesn't. Oh, and, and before I forget it, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm afraid I did a very stupid thing. Yes, well, I got a ski outfit and skis for that, that new German waitress. Who, uh, oh, uh, Frieda Gruber? Yeah. 
I, I shouldn't have done it. She's good. She's very good, but... Well, she's just not in shape. No. No, I suppose not. But she'd just better take it easy. And she's very reckless, too. She doesn't know the country. I, I saw her this morning uh, near Thundercliff. Thundercliff? She mustn't go near there. there. There are signs all over the place. Yeah, there are signs, but she may not understand them. You know, we phrase things so differently in America. Yeah, well, you just talk to her, Gordon. Explain exactly what they mean so there'll be no mistake. And tell her that she must not go skiing alone. All right, I will, Mr. Wood. I'll make it very clear to her. Yes, do that. But Thundercliff. Suicide and an accident right now positively ruined the sports carnival. Well, Carl, you've made one more step in your plan, haven't you? A reasonable explanation for the accident at Thundercliff. And the storm has played into your hands, too. The snow will cover your tracks. Late that night, after you and Clorinda returned from the village, where you went for a marriage license, you slip into Frida's cabin. She's sleeping a deep, heavy sleep. You put a pillow over her face. All over quickly. And you look through the cabin for anything else which might connect you with her. The rest of your plan is more difficult. But you finally accomplish it. And two hours later, Frida's body, dressed in a ski suit, is at the bottom of Thunder Cliff. In the morning, when you go into the lobby, there's an air of tension, as if something had happened. The sheriff and a couple of members of the ski patrol... Are at the desk with Mr. Wood. Uh, Carl, will you come here a moment, please? Well, certainly, Mr. Wood. Carl, that that German waitress, did you talk to her about skiing alone? Oh, yes, I did, Mr. Wood. I made it very plain. Well, she, uh, she didn't take your advice, and it's cost her her life. No. What's happened, Sheriff? Well, the girl ran over the edge of Thundercliff. Her body was found at the bottom. It was obviously an accident. Yeah, I guess we'd better fill out the accident report. went very simply and smoothly, didn't it, Carl? The body of your wife, Frida, was found at the bottom of Thunder Cliff. The sheriff considers it an accident. And now nothing stands in the way of your marriage to wealthy Clorinda Rogers. You're helping the sheriff to fill out the accident report when Dr. Prentice comes up. Uh, this is Dr. Prentice, Sheriff. Oh, good. We need your help, Doctor. There's been an accident. An accident? I'll get my bag and be with you right away. I know it's too late for that. The accident was fatal. That new uh, German waitress was skiing and went over a cliff. Surely you, you don't mean Frida Gruber? Yes, yes, Doctor. It, it, it's just terrible. Not only that, it, it's impossible. The girl couldn't have gone skiing. Well, she did, and she was very reckless. Well, Carl here warned her. That's right, Doctor. Oh. That girl had a displaced kneecap, an old injury. She heard it again skiing yesterday morning. She called me last night, said she didn't want the lodge position to know anything about it. Asked me not to mention it. Hmm. Well, it doesn't seem likely she'd go skiing with a bad knee. Not only that, she was in great pain. I gave her a strong sedative. She couldn't have wakened naturally before noon. Then someone wakened her, took her out to the cliff, pushed her over? I see no other explanation, Sheriff. But who'd want to do that? Did she have any enemies here, Miss Wood? Oh, no, no. She was a displaced person. She just arrived. She knew no one here and talked very little. Who did she talk to, uh... 
do, Gordon? Well, we only talked on the subject of skiing, Sheriff. I warned her at Mr. Wood's request. Did uh, she say anything to you, Dr. Prentice, about anyone wanting to kill her? Of course not. And she didn't seem to be the sort of girl who would make enemies. She was naive, sweet, so happy about being in America. Well, sure beats me. She seemed very anxious to learn American customs. Oh, that reminds me. She made a rather amusing request. Well, what was it? She gave me a letter that arrived for her yesterday. She insisted I have Mr. Wood put it in the hotel safe. She had the quaint idea that everything was kept in a safe in America. Well, what's this? May throw some light on the matter. Here it is. Right here. It's apparently forwarded to her from some refugee association. I doubt if it would be any help. Well, I'll take a look. Dear madam, we are pleased to inform you that we have finally located your missing husband. He is working as skiing instructor at Sylvana Lodge, Colorado, under the name of Carl Gordon. Bill Foreman is the whistler, Gerald Moore, Isabel Jewell, Gladys Holland, Ed Begley, John Daner, and Herb Butterfield. The whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by George Adrian and Carol Nix, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on the whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow the Riley and Kimmy show. We feature old time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y. And Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y, dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals, too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy Show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Find archive podcasts of the Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.